Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the Info2 Engineering Culture Podcast. At the Agile India Conference earlier this year, I recorded a number of podcasts. In this episode, we've got the conversations first that I had with Jeremy Kriegel, who was the chair of the Design Innovation Day for the conference. And then I sat down and spoke with Doc Norton on why Tuckman was wrong. Enjoy. Jeremy, you're the chair of the Design Innovation track? Yes. So, Design Innovation, what's that about? So we're trying to look at how do you move products forward and and innovate by bringing new product practices as well as design practices together. And I think this is something that's new to Agile India. The Design Innovation track is in its second year, and we had mixed some of these topics in with other tracks in previous years, but we felt that last year was a time to give it its own space so that we could explore them a little deeper. And what makes you the right person to lead that track? Do you want to give us a bit of your background? Uh, oh, wow. Um, I feel like that's a big weight to put on the right person. So here's why I'm here. Let, let's go with that. <laughs> I've been in the UX field for more than two decades. So mm-hmm. I had some fairly deep experience there. And when I started, design was very much in waterfall state. And there was a lot of great protocols written about how you do design. You start with research and then you model the problem and you model your users and you come up with some potential solutions and you test them and iterate. And you do this very lengthy process which gives you a lot of great information and you give it to the developers and they build it. And it sounds nice in a sense, but it never happened in practice because the real world constraints just never let you spend that much time up front doing that kind of work. So it always felt like we were cheating. And so when I was first exposed to agility around 2007, I was like, oh wait, this gives us the permission to create a process that exactly meets our needs. And so it, it went from feeling like we were cheating our users to feeling like we were doing the exact right thing that we needed to do given what we were trying to accomplish and the constraints that we had. So I felt that agility was just a perfect match for design. So in the last dozen or so years, I've been trying to bring the design and agile communities together because I think there is a lot of synergy. And I also think there's a lot of antagonism. Although to be fair, I believe that the agile community is more interested in UX and design than the design community is interested in agility. And I think that's a problem that I'm I'm trying to help with. I've heard talks that say Agile has destroyed product management and Agile undermines UX. Does it? I think when it's done well, no. But as we talk, in many ways, some of the Agile anti-patterns have really burned UX designers. We want to think holistically, you know, because that's how our users, our customers are going to experience our products. They don't experience them in pieces they need to move through our product to get work done. So if it's built in pieces and those pieces don't connect and it doesn't fit their mental model, then users are frustrated. And so that has hurt a lot of designers who feel like they haven't been able to take that holistic approach. So rather than continue to evolve, there's been a bit of a rejection, which I think is a bit unfair and and premature. So what are some of the important messages that are happening in the design innovation track? So we've got a a wide diversity of topics from 
dual track agile with a woman speaking on that we're bringing in some other areas of innovation to inspire thinking from artificial intelligence to, to marketing and branding and user research just so it's a really wide variety of how to get at creating the best product that you can create that's going to serve the people that you're meant to serve and any particular highlights for you out of that well I think what we've tried to put together is a mix of the very practical with a bit of the inspirational. Mm -hmm. And I think when you come to an event, you want to be inspired, you want to hear something different. So I look at like Ali, who's talking about artificial intelligence and Bill, who's talking about you know, marketing and branding is the kind of things that you might not expect to find at this Agile conference talking about design and innovation. But we'll also be talking about a lot of very practical topics as well. So I think the mix should give people real things that they can take back with them and incorporate into their work, as well as expand their mind on along some dimensions or vectors that they might not have thought about before they came. What are some of the things that UX professionals are struggling with today? Oh, that's, that's a great question. There's still, I think, some challenge in understanding the value that UX brings and how exactly to integrate that with teams. I think there's a general sense of UX as a good thing. Mm -hmm. And what's missing is what does it really mean to bring those practices into a team? In my experience, I've worked with a number of startups. And when some of these companies realize that they need design, it's when they've sort of hit their tipping point. They've gone up and up and they've, they've, they've captured some of those early adopters who really want what they want. And as they try to get a larger audience, if the usability isn't there, they can't grow, and then they might even start to shrink. And then they say, oh, we need a better product. We need to make sure this works better. It fits people's mental models. Then they start to integrate UX. It's a little late at that point. Yeah. When that pressure is on, it's hard to make the cultural changes necessary to move from potentially a feature-driven or a organization to a outcome and user-centered organization. I think that incorporating design is similar to an agile adoption it's it's a cultural change it's a you change the way that you think about it it's not that you add a ux person and suddenly you have a magically better product that ux person is going to influence the team and try to get the whole team to be thinking from a user-centered perspective and if that team isn't ready to change in that way it's going to be an uphill battle now i've seen a lot of success there and I think one of the ways that UX can really help is by bringing some of the research and interviewing techniques that we've developed over the years in terms of how to really understand what people need. Because so I think once developers and product owners and other stakeholders get a real view into what people need, how they work, where they're struggling, their opinions on current product design, it completely changes their priorities. You get a sense of empathy that you don't get from reading a report or just getting the data. When you actually watch someone struggle with your product, it's dramatic. One startup I worked with many years ago was in the healthcare space, and the founder was a surgeon. Now, obviously, he knows more about being a physician than I will ever know. But at that point in his career, he was a CEO. So he was no longer in an office seeing patients 
trying to use this product for 10 or 15 minutes at a time between patients. He lived and breathed this product. It was his baby. So he, even though he had that background as a physician, he could no longer really empathize with how the people he was trying to serve were actually going to be using that product. So we could help, again, reconnect him with those folks. You were talking about working in an interesting domain at the moment, one where you... <laughs> somewhat out of your depth almost in terms of the the domain experience. Do you want to tell us the story here? Yeah, so I've worked in a lot of different industries from financial services, e-commerce, online gaming, some healthcare. And in many of those, once you have some understanding of who you're trying to serve, you can kind of empathize and put yourself in their shoes and use that to try and make good design decisions. Right now, I lead the design team at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. And I'm working on open source software that scientists will use to do research on large data sets. And that is a really complex space. And it is really hard to empathize with how genetic researchers work. There are certainly times when someone will explain their work to me. And I have to ask a lot of questions because I don't understand 50% of the words that just came out of their mouth. Or even if I understand most of the words that came out of their mouth, the way they strung them together makes no sense to me. So when I first started, it was completely new. After about six months, I would caveat anything I said with the statement that I was probably about 80% accurate. I was probably getting something wrong. Six months later, I said, okay, now I'm 80% accurate. It's been close to two years. I think my accuracy is down to 60% because I keep learning more and more about what I don't know. Now that doesn't mean we can't be effective because we've gotten better and better at modeling the parts that we need to understand and that we need to communicate to the product and development teams. So we are helping to increase the understanding across the the product organization, but it is, there's so much depth here. You know, we're dealing with people with PhDs who are running research labs and it's a fascinating domain. It feels great to be a part of it, but it is humbling. So what is the message of that to the Agile team or the UX professional who's listening to this? You know, when you asked me that question, the first thing I thought of is I've probably been too overconfident in the past. Like when I say, yes, I can empathize with other users, I'm probably overestimating how much, even if I've done the research, even if I've spent some time with them, probably overestimating how much I really understand them. So the more that we engage, the more we test our understanding and get feedback on the work that we're doing, the more we can validate that, the better we are. And I think that that, there still needs to be more of that in in our space. And where is the UX, Agile, Innovation, DevOps, what's happening next? What's the the next big wave or, or the next thing that our listeners should be looking out for? In many ways, I still feel like I'm fighting the first wave in that I think that in what I've seen, and, and, and so other people will probably have different experiences, the integration is still weak. So I think we still need to get our basics down in terms of how to strongly integrate UX practices in an iterative way with agile product and development practices. When that is widespread, then I think I'll be able to think about what's coming next. But I think until that foundation is laid, I'm not ready to move beyond that. And finally, advice for young players. 
young players in terms of people entering the UX space or? Yeah, or coming into the space from either direction. Maybe there's a couple things I could add. And, and one would be a non-traditional one. I would suggest that every young practitioner is get your financial house in order. Because when you can make decisions based on the best opportunity that's going to help you learn and grow and not on what do you need to support yourself, you will be able to make better and healthier decisions that will move your career and move your products forward faster. Mm -hmm. So it's not really sexy, but you know, get a chunk of money behind you, understand how your finances work, do that work first, and you'll have more freedom later on in your career. So that's one thing not really related to sign and UX. Another thing that I would say is find good mentors. There are people out there with deep experience and there's a lot of nuance in how you gather information effectively from users. And learning from someone who's done it well and understands those nuances and communicates that will accelerate your growth by leaps and bounds. I had the great fortune early on in my career to learn user research, for instance, from a PhD who was running a user research lab at Xerox. And that was a great experience because I got to understand how he viewed user research. I wasn't experimenting on my own and failing fast. I was taught and that was fantastic. So he taught me how to structure uh, research scripts, how to do recruiting, how to interview, how to ask great questions. And then I got to take over some of the research with his mentorship guiding me until I could then own it moving forward. So early on in my career, while I was offered positions where I would have been the lead, I often looked for positions where there was a more senior person already on the team that I could learn from. And I did that for well over a decade before I felt confident that I would take a lead role and I was ready for that lead role. If our listeners want to continue the conversation, where do they find you? LinkedIn is probably the best place. That's where I think a lot of my conversations happen, so I'm, I'm always eager to connect with people on LinkedIn. I'm also happy to provide email. I don't do the Twitters much during events a little bit, but not active on Twitter. So really, I'm, all, I'm old school in that way. So <laughs> LinkedIn and email is probably the best. Cool. Jeremy, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, Shane, it's been a pleasure. I'm at the Agile India conference and sitting down with Doc Norton. Doc, hi. Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, you and I know each other, but I suspect some of our audience, at least, wouldn't have come across you before. So do you want to give us just a bit of background? Sure. So I'm Doc Norton, co-founder of Envelay Consulting. I have been in software for about 30 years, give or take, as a professional. In the last 15 or more years, kind of more of a focus on agile, organizational design, leadership, those types of things. Right now, and probably for the foreseeable future, doing a lot of coaching, but also have served in director and CTO roles in various companies. At the conference, you gave a talk with a, a slightly controversial, dare we say, clickbait title. Yeah. title. <laughs> Tuckman was wrong. Tuckman was wrong, yeah. But surely Tuckman is the foundation of all of the work, all <laughs> that we know about stable teams and form, storm, norm, perform. So where was he wrong? You're right. The title's a little clickbaity, um, maybe more than a little. It's intentional. 
when we look at agility, you know, one of the common themes is that we've got to have stable teams. You want to have those stable teams, and the number one reason is because Tuckmans. We've got these various phases teams go through, forming, storming, norming, performing. There's some others in the model that were later added or whatever, but those are the four basic ones. And the fundamental idea is that teams go through these stages in order. So you start off with forming, then you get into storming. When you're in storming, performance is very low, lots of tension, very difficult. You get into norming where you start to actually standardize on the way that you're gonna work and coalesce, and then finally you're a high-performing team. So we don't wanna change up membership, because if we do that, teams regress into storming, performance goes down, and there's all kinds of problems. I mean, we've known this for a long time. Turns out it's a theory, and it's wrong. Teams do go through these stages, perhaps, they don't necessarily go through them in order. They don't necessarily go through all of them. They may go through them in an order you would not anticipate. This is all based on numerous studies, the largest one from the U.S. government across hundreds of thousands of people over several years. And what they found was that if you look at the behaviors for each of these phases, forming, storming, norming, performing, and you actually map them out over a timeline for teams, one, we found all these things, you don't go through them necessarily in order, etc. But a really significant one that I thought was very, very interesting was that storming happens all of the time. And it happens more on high-performing teams. So there's a correlation between high-performance behaviors and storming behaviors. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that, of course, that storming is healthy versus maybe the early storming that teams might discover. But if we realize this, we realize that storming is always happening. And so there is no such thing as a regression into storming. It's just there. Storming is part of the cycle. It's part of the cycle. It's part of being a team. You know, I sort of look at going, well, wait, our number one reason for not changing team membership seems to be unfounded. It seems to be wrong. So I, I think Tuckman's model is very useful. I think the theories are useful. But as most models, it's wrong, although useful. And so I really want us to start thinking about, okay, wait a minute. If this is not really the case, why did we want stable teams? And do they still make sense? So that's at least the premise, the start of the talk. And I kind of take us through, I think that a lot of stuff with stable teams was, had more to do with not over-allocating people and not putting people on multiple projects at once. When we stabilized the teams, it kind of became a necessity a team works on a single project, there's more shared work, right? So we resolve some problems that were happening because of resource utilization mm-hmm. versus stages of team development. So stable teams that definitely have a benefit. Yes, you abso- see that. Absolutely had a benefit. Absolutely did. And I think still do. I think that, you know, when you when you're starting off, if you if you are looking to to reshape a culture in an organization or if you're looking to start a company or a team Yes, stabilization helps. And then there are techniques that we can use to kind of grow those teams that allows for those norms, standards, memes, whatever, to kind of spread throughout the organization. But one of the things that we found, if you look at larger organizations that have grown with these stable teams, you end up with all these little micro silos. Mm-hmm. Knowledge isn't necessarily getting shared between these groups. It's a reemergence of fiefdoms. They just look different. In some organizations, you get cults of personality and all kinds of problems that ensue from these stable teams. So if we have coalesced on some standards and some norms, and we have developed this ability to learn across the organization, we can have a much healthier organization. And the way that we do that is we start moving people around on teams. 
not that managers move them around, but that people can opt in, opt out. They can self-select. We create broader connection in the organization. So stable teams definitely had an advantage, but ultimately we need to get to somewhere where there's fluidity and high connection between these teams so that the organization is more resilient and more able to adapt to change. And that's kind of the talk in a nutshell, I think. Mm -hmm. I go into some of the reteaming patterns. So let's explore this whole idea of reteaming. Are we, are we saying reform teams every three weeks? No. no, no, there's definitely advantages. I think we can all agree that there are advantages to having a, a team that, you know, that has worked together for a while, knows each other, right? So some of the patterns that we might look at would, would be things like having teams create their own onboarding so that they can easily ingest new members. So someone joins this team. They can very quickly get up to speed on how does this team work, what are the norms, what are the memes, how do we actually do things, how do we learn. And usually they can kind of matriculate into a team within a matter of weeks as opposed to months because we're very deliberate about how we bring them in and onboard them. And then we can actually grow these teams. So if they're good at taking people in, you can grow a team, keep adding people to it till it gets to be a little bit larger than necessary, and then you split that team. And now you've got two teams that have shared standards, shared norms, that are good at ingesting people, and you can grow those teams again, and you can split them again. So I call this a mitosis pattern. We're gonna grow the organization through mitosis. Many organizations, what they do is they take a high-performing team, and they go, wow, you guys are fantastic. And we split them, we break the team up, and we disperse them throughout the organization in hopes that they'll somehow spread their goodness. And instead, what happens is they get diluted into the broader organization. So this mitosis approach is a different way of doing it. We might have teams that form for short periods of time to solve critical problems. I'll call these a volunteer fire department, but they're not gonna be long lived. Those people are gonna go back to their standard team. Mm -hmm. It might be something where we're sharing team members. Mm -hmm. So one team may loan a couple of developers to another and a couple of developers from the other team comes to the host Mm -hmm. team. And this way, we're just sharing knowledge across these teams for a short period of time. Fluidity looks a number of different ways, but no, it's it's not about rebooting the whole organization every three weeks or three months. It looks a little bit different than that, usually. So it's a more deliberate... Yes. Yeah. I don't know if they still do it, but I know that LinkedIn for quite a while had this idea of tours of duty. Mm-hmm. You would join, you would go on a tour, which mm-hmm. basically meant you would join a team for six months or a year. At the end of that tour, you would have the option to re-up the tour or move to a different team. Mm -hmm. So now what we have is we've got predictability in the movement between teams, but people have options. Mm -hmm. But we've got a long enough commitment that we, one, can probably deliver something, and two, can get to know that team well enough Mm -hmm. to be able to make a good decision. Some organizations will run internal job fairs, Mm -hmm. and there are times of the year where you see lots of movement Mm -hmm. and then it settles down again other organizations are doing this where it's a little more fluid people are moving all year long very infrequently in large batches and most of this is around Mm self-selection it's allowing people to decide that they want to move to a different team versus some manager deciding well i need you over here i'm going to move you and that self-selection, that autonomy is quite an important part of this, isn't it? I think it's an extremely important part of it. And you want people who have opted in. I've helped organizations increase the mobility of their, especially developers, but you know their product teams in general. And, and there's a couple of fears. One of them is that everyone will leave the boring work and all move towards the exciting, interesting, sexy work. 
And it turns out that that is entirely true. Luckily, we all have different opinions about what is interesting, sexy, or attractive work. So, you know, for me, maybe, I just finished up launching some new vertical and we were killing ourselves working 60 hours a week and I really want a respite and maybe a family member is taken ill or something along those lines. And all I really want to do for the next few months is come in, pick up a ticket, move it to done and go home. And so that work is very appealing to me. Whereas for someone else, you know, they want to do the new experimenting on a new platform, trying to see if maybe we can, you know, enter into a new market, whatever it might be. So it typically turns out that people migrate towards different work at different periods of their life and creating an environment that allows for that actually increases retention. Yeah, because otherwise they're going to migrate to another organization. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What are some organizations that are doing this well? So I think there's some kind of classic examples at this point. So Valve does this very well. They released their handbook a while back and it was kind of a rage for a little bit. At Valve, the mobility is extremely high. My understanding is that people can actually move from team to team almost at will. Spotify has always done this fairly well. It's a little less mobile in terms of you can't just get up one day and move to a different team. But there is plenty of opportunity to move from one group to another. We actually started doing this very well at Groupon. When I got there, one of the challenges that we had, formerly with Groupon, one of the challenges we had when I first arrived there was uh, we were losing a lot of folks to other organizations. And when we started looking at exit interviews and, and doing some other things, it turned out that what was happening was people were going to their manager and saying, hey, I want to try something different, or you know, I want to work in this different technology, or I need a change. And oftentimes the manager's response was, Oh man, you know, that's just, it's not, that's not really going to work out for us right now. We really need you on this team, on this project. And so they would leave the organization because they didn't have an internal option. And so what we did was we set some ground rules for managers and we set a process in place such that when someone indicated that they wanted to move to a different team or seek a different opportunity internally, it was never a question of if, it was only a question of when. And so there were steps that you went through to set up what needs to be accomplished in order for me to move to this other thing that I want. And so then people knew, oh, I can do that in two weeks, maybe it's two months, mm -hmm. but they knew what needed to be accomplished and when, and then the move could happen. So the only folks that weren't allowed to move were folks that were on, there was some other performance issue that was already known. If you came to your manager and said, hey, I'd like to move to this other team, your manager couldn't then put you on a performance program to keep you on the team. That was forbidden. Mm -hmm. But if you were already on a performance program, you couldn't opt out until that was settled. And that seemed like a reasonable compromise for us. It worked very well. People moved around a lot more. We kept a lot more folks in the organization as a result. One that springs to my mind is Menlo Innovations. I know that you yes. spent time with Rich and his team. What do you think yeah. of the way they do it? There's so much that that organization does that I really, really like. They've got high fluidity in the organization. I talk about fluidity and mobility kind of inter interchangeably. And all I really mean is that people can move from role to role, can move from team to team. I think for them, it's baked right into the, to the ethos. It is, you know, it, it's just, it's a part of who they are that people get these, these various opportunities throughout their time at, at Menlo. I think they do it really well. Another thing you're known for is metrics. Yeah, yes. Tell us about the book and... Yeah, yeah. So the book is called Escape Velocity. It's available on Lean Pub. And actually, it started as a talk 10 years ago. 
and has moved into a book. But it's fundamentally about when we look at metrics in software development, especially agility, velocity is the number one metric that comes up. And it really is not a very good metric in general. Turns out that the early teams, when you look at the XP and Scrum teams and velocity as a concept kind of derived from what, you know, what those teams were doing, we're talking primarily about teams that were very healthy, that were at a high functioning, small chunks of work, very predictable. They had figured out their work in progress. They'd figured out batch size. They'd figured out flow. They'd figured out a bunch of different things. And then velocity as a metric is actually relatively helpful. But for most teams, they're not at that level. And velocity is devoid of sufficient information for us to determine is the team healthy or not. It's not very good for predicting the team's capability in the short term. So I kind of break down why maybe we don't want to use velocity quite as, as much as we do and start talking about other metrics. Throughput, which is very similar to velocity, lead times, cycle times, monitoring your whip, batch size, etc. So a handful of metrics that you can use to help to stabilize your throughput to get velocity to the point where it's actually a useful metric. Almost the irony of it is that if you use all of these other metrics and you improve your performance to the point that velocity is useful, you don't need it because the other metrics are actually more useful. Getting there takes a while. It does, it certainly does. And there are many, many paths to get there. I've seen too many teams get beat up over their velocity not being high enough or being too variable, and they don't have the tools to evaluate their health and figure out how to improve it. So hopefully this helps some teams get to where they need to be. And you said it's on LeanPub? Yeah, leanpub.com front slash escape velocity. Doc, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, my pleasure, thank you. If people want to continue the conversation, where do they find you? Yeah, so I am Doc on Dev everywhere. Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, you name it. So that's probably the easiest way to find me is to just search for Doc on Dev. Also, doc at onbelay.co is not .com, it is .co. It's a, it's a great way to get hold of me as well. Thanks so much. Thank you.